God, just thank you for uh, the journey you've taken us on. Um, thank you for showing us uh, in a lot of different ways over the last little while what it means to be um, a community. And Lord, we just want a lot more tonight. We want to ask you again that you'd speak to us, that we'd hear from you about what it means. Um, pray that you'd help us to listen with kind of soft hearts and a lot of humility, <laughs> being willing when you ask us to change to kind of give things up that we need to. So just be with us, God. We pray your spirit would be here with us in a special way, that we'd hear from you, straight from your heart to ours, and that uh, we'd hopefully become a bit more like you by the time we leave. So be with us in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Hello. All right, okay. We're going through uh, um, kind of middle value, that's what we've been doing for the last little while. Um, if you've been around and you didn't know that, that's our fault for bad communication. Um, <laughs> We've got those three values which we spoke about. Beginning of the year, we started out with reviving people, recreating community, and restoring the world. And we're kind of at a bit of a pivot point now. We've, we've spoken through what it means to kind of be revived as a person. And we spoke about healing of hurts and healing of past and healing of a bunch of the relationship with God, relationship with others. And we looked at spiritual gifts and what it means for an individual to kind of find out who God made them and why he made them like that. And, and what that means for you and what you, what you tr- should be trying to look to kind of become in your relationship with God. And then we kind of move through a phase into what does it mean to be a community? So it's pointless us kind of being individuals in relationship with God if it doesn't lead to this, like where we're together as God's people. And we've spoken over the last little while about community. And I'm sure you can remember loads of those messages. What did Russ preach on last week? He brought wine. Russ brought wine last week. <laughs> so, <laughs> point to take from that is you guys remember illustrations. Okay. Um, and we've spoken about, Gary spoke about Ruth and kind of how community gets created. I spoke a little bit about grace and peace and why Paul talks to communities about we need to be communities filled with grace and peace towards each other. Russ spoke last week about what does it mean to experience God together as a community. Am I right? Was I listening? Sort of, so good. Um, and this week, we want to move into, and then we're going to move into camp, where we're going to hit all three of those values over again over the weekend. And then we're going to move, after camp, we're going to start to move towards what does it mean to then be part of restoring the world? Because again, like that flow, reviving people into recreating community, it's pointless if we're just about this little group that meets here, or a group that meets somewhere. God's got a job for us as a community to get out there and then restore the world. So tonight's probably going to be the last, maybe the last, we might count for a little bit afterwards. We're very flexible here. Um, I don't even know what we're doing. No, no, we know exactly what we're doing. Um, and we're going to move on afterwards and speak a bit more, and then we're going, to, we're going to chat into what does it mean for us to go out and be part of God's mission to restore the world. So I want us to take a look tonight. Um, and I, I'm going to warn you beforehand, I'm going to bounce around a bit tonight, if that's all right. And, but we, I'll, I'll pull it together, I'll, I think. I'll try. Yes, I put it together. So I've got, I've got a plan. And then we're going to move into communion afterwards and sort of use that as a time of ministry where we can sort of hopefully practice some of this community stuff. So um, let's start here. Uh, if you want to turn there, it's Luke chapter 6, just to check I'm not lying. Um, Luke chapter 6 from verses 12 to 16. We're just going to read this and then we'll chat around it just a little bit. This is one of those days... Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, 
John, Philip, Bartholomew, sweet name, um, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and, si- and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. You notice that they didn't have very many name choices in those days. It's pretty much Simon, Judas, or something like that, or James. Those are James. Um, so we often look at that list, and I know, I know we kind of look through the Gospels a lot, especially at the end of last year we spent quite a bit of time in Matthew. You, you will have heard those names pop up like over and over again, Jesus' disciples and those kind of names. And I don't know what your view of the disciples is, but the more kind of you chat to people, you, you, you get the feeling that when people read the Scriptures, they think of this kind of homogenous, do you know what I mean? Kind of very same, I'll try Patrick, I'll just check it. Um, like very samey kind of group. They were all kind of middle-aged Jewish Good boys who followed Jesus. That's kind of what they were like. And we think of them kind of as this like, almost like a faceless group. They were just kind of very much like each other. They decided to get together or Jesus called them and they decided they were going to follow Jesus. But they looked, they were pretty much similar to each other. We don't know a lot about a lot of the disciples. We don't, we don't have a lot of info. But there's a few we do. And, and it suggests um, something to me. That actually, they were very, very different from each other a lot of them. You see, what used to happen is, is when you wanted to follow a rabbi, you would have to go through this very hectic educational system. And it meant that you, you, you looked a particular way. And, and when a class would come out, they'd go out and find a rabbi. So every rabbi who had this group of disciples, his disciples would have been the same, through the same kind of educational system, and would have been thinking fairly similarly, and would have looked fairly similar, like we think of the disciples. But Jesus did it quite differently, didn't he? Um, take, a look at, um, take a look at Peter for a second. Peter uh, is this guy from a little town called Bethsaida. Um, now, this place is like, I've seen it on film, like the ruins of the place. It's like, it's not even a village, really. It's like, it, the, the ruins, they, they reckon there were about 10 kind of household units in this whole village. That's where he came from. And actually, Peter came from there, Andrew came from there, James, John, and Philip all came from this one little place. So you can imagine Jesus was kind of in the area. No, no, yeah. I think he had more purpose than that. But they all came from this one little, little village. They, they almost certainly knew each other. Everyone knew each other's families and all the rest of it. But now, Peter was a fisherman. So, I mean, this place is right on the sea slash lake of Galilee. Right there, and, and, and fishing was big in that area. That's how you made a living. It's how you got food for your family. You'd sell it, you'd get money, the rest of it. So the, the families, a lot of the families there would have fished. And Peter, when Jesus finds him, when Jesus goes looking for him, is down by the shore with his dad, and then they're going out fishing. That's, that's what his job was. This means something. This, this means that Peter has decided that the job he's going to do for his life is fishing. Now, remember I said to you, they went through this whole hectic educational system, compulsory for everyone under the age of six to be in Jewish education. And up to the age of about six, seven, you had to learn the first five books of the Bible off by heart, word for word. Still goes on today in Jewish culture. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. The whole lot. Alright. That's quite hectic. By the age of six. That's pretty hectic. Then they would go on, and if you were good at that, if you were pretty clever, and you were, you were scoring A's, then they would have taken you on, and you would have gone to the next level. And by the age of about 12, you had to memorize the whole of the Old Testament, which was the whole of their scriptures in the day. Genesis, through to Malachi, 
word for word. And not just be able to recite it, but be able to dialogue about it because you understood it and you knew what was going on. And then if you were really, really good, you'd go off and you'd become someone's disciple or, or, or some rabbi's follower because you were really, really good. Some stage, Peter dropped out and goes fishing because he, he schemes it like, you know, that's, this is not for me. I'm not good enough to do this. So he goes down and he starts fishing. And that's where Jesus comes and calls him. You just didn't do that in those days. It wasn't okay to do. Now, Andrew is Peter's brother. And something we know about Andrew is that he was John the Baptist's disciple. Okay, what does that mean straight away? That means he's done the age one to six education. He knows Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy off by heart. He's also done the whole of the Old Testament. He knows everything up to the end of Malachi off by heart. And he was so good that he went to John and he said, look, I want to follow you, I want to be like you. And John would have sat down and interviewed him and given him a hard time and chatted about him and talked to him about God and, and, and see if he could kind of hold his own and if this guy could actually do it. And then he accepted him, John the Baptist accepted him as his disciple. And then one day, and John it speaks about it, where, John, where Jesus goes walking past one day and Andrew sees him and says, um, I need to go and follow that guy. And John releases him, he says, go, you're right, you do need to go and follow Jesus. So he gets set free and goes to follow Jesus. Now, do you think there might be any tension between these two guys? Who does Jesus pick as his top three guys? James, John, and? Peter dropped out. Andrew is hardcore. Andrew has been to seminary. The dude is a pastor in training. He is the man when it comes to theological who's Mahala. He's the guy. He's the guy. And yet, Jesus turns around and says to this guy who dropped out, who wasn't good enough, you, in a circle, in a circle. Do you think there might be some tension there? There would have been a bit of, especially because it's your brother, you know? I mean, there's tension from the day you're born with your brother. Brother's not. <coughs> this guy, Matthew, was a tax collector. Okay, now, now, politics in the day, and I've spoken to you about this before, but it bears repeating just for this, that Rome ruled. Israel. Israel didn't rule themselves at the time. Rome was in charge. They sorted things out. And because they kind of had this army that would just go from place to place and conquer and conquer, so everything in the known world at the time was Roman and they owned the works. They'd have to leave governors in place, soldiers in place, and they'd have to keep collecting people to keep that army strong to go on to the next place to cause more havoc. So it, it took a lot of manpower. To, to keep this whole Roman Empire going, because it just spread and spread, and you had to leave people everywhere you went. So much so that there were like menial tasks, which you couldn't actually get Romans to do, so you get the local guys to do. And one of those menial tasks was collecting taxes, because conquering the world is expensive. <laughs> so you need bucks. So they would say to the people that, that, you know, if you don't want us to give you a hard time, basically, and you want us to, to, to better your roads and give you aqueducts or the rest of it, you need to pay taxes. To Rome. So they would find some usually sort of, you know, shady character, usually, because he had to sort of not really have a backbone and say, would you mind betraying your country and, uh, you know, taking all your mates' money? And Matthew at some point said, yeah, alright, yeah, that's cool, can I keep a percentage? You know, and, and, and he went into this job. Well, you've got to imagine, he would have had to sit in a booth every day with, with people he knew filing past, his countrymen filing past to give him money because they had to, to give to a foreign power that should never have been there because this was God's people and they were passionate about the fact that they were God's people, the Jews. And they would have seen him as a traitor. 
you would have got spat on, insulted, and, and not you would not have been well liked at all. Now, Jesus put that guy in the same group as Simon, who was also called the Zealot. Do you know what a Zealot is? He's a, it actually, it, it, yeah. These guys hated the fact that Rome ruled Israel. Hated it. Like they were, they were so mad about it that they took violent means to get Rome out. There were a group of zealots called the Saqqara who used to have these like long curved daggers they used to keep under their cloaks. Basically, just so they could run around and find the old Roman soldier who wasn't keeping up with his group and just and then leave him in an alleyway because anything they could do to disrupt them. Anything. If there was a riot started, it was usually these oaks, the zealots. <coughs> guy who's betrayed his country and is now working for Rome. Guy who knifes Romans. <laughs> Zombies. <laughs> so how does that work? And we don't know a lot about the others, but it seems to me, even from just those couple of examples, that you have got potential for huge tension in that group. These are not guys who Jesus is pulling together because they agree with each other. In fact, he seems to be going really, really diverse and picking people from all over the place and just pulling them together, kind of like a cross-section. And Jesus had a habit of doing that, didn't he? I mean, you kind of see the parties Jesus goes to. He invites the pastor in the area, the local synagogue dude, the pastor, and then he invites the prostitute, because, you know, that'll be a good time. (laughs) And let's stick them all in a room together so we can have a chat. Can you imagine if we did that today? I'm going to do that. It, it wouldn't go down well, would it? It, w- it wouldn't go down well. And yet Jesus does it. He pulls cross-sections. It doesn't matter. You don't have to agree with each other. But I'm calling you all to follow me. All of you. And all together. I, I need you all to follow me. Not necessarily agree, but you all need to follow me. And you have to remember as well that these guys, you've seen the movies, they're always middle-aged, sort of uh, slightly boring-looking bearded looks. These guys were teenagers. There's every chance these guys were teenagers. In fact, most, almost certainly most of those guys were teenagers. Just coming out of education and all the rest of it. And Jesus grabbed them and asked them, said, follow me. Pull them into a group where there would have been a lot of disparity. And said, stay together as this group. Because you're now going to get your life pointed towards a new purpose. Okay. We're going to change track for a minute. I think today, um, we have a problem. Because... We don't have a lot of churches like that group of disciples, do we? Most of our churches are very samey looking. We all think the same, don't we? By and large. Do you, do you know, I, I, I realise this over and over again, that, that you, you kind of go to a different church, you realise, wow, these guys think very different to me, and yet we're kind of from the same, we, we follow the same God, you know? I mean, I even go to the morning services. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I actually, I'm really enjoying the morning services at the moment, and, 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 but it's very different. It's very different, and yet we are on the same side. In fact, more than that, we're, we're part of the same community by name, here. by name. And yet we've got this idea that we always need to agree about everything. We pull groups together because everyone in our group has to agree about everything. That's very Western thought. Very westernized kind of idea. And we, we get our western thought from Greek thought. And, and they used to, you know, it's philosophy and it's whatever, which kind of, we, we then pulled in kind of the modern era kind of scientific way of thinking and we kind of combined it. And now we've got a way where if we think about stuff or talk about things, it has to be logical. It has to be rational. 
And if we're getting anywhere, it's because we agree about stuff and about points. Then we know that we're getting somewhere, and we know that we're right and that everything's good. That wasn't always the case. And in fact, in the time of Jesus, that was, that was foreign thought. Their thought patterns is a lot more like what the Eastern thought patterns are today. Because it was more <coughs> about image, about pictures, about stories, about dialogue, sometimes about silence. <coughs> Frustrating. You know, it, it, was, it was a very different concept and way, of, and way of thinking. They had this thing called midrash, which simply means to like expound or to discuss. And they would literally get together in groups and fight. You know, I mean, with all the, the, the you know, Mediterranean people have. <laughs> where you just you get together and you, you have a good wall about God. Now, I think God is like this. Well, it's okay, but you're wrong, because God is like that. And they would argue with each other, in each other's faces. And then, at the end, shake hands, hug, and we go for a feast together. And they would say, we have had a good day, because we've, we've argued together about God. They wouldn't go, oh my word, I feel so terrible. Because we get this like inner sort of twist of guilt. We go, uh-oh, I don't agree with so-and-so. What am I going to do with that? Our Western minds cannot cope with that. There's something wrong because we don't agree about every point. And they would be like, well, it's great. Because we, we got to we got to dialogue and we got to we got to we got to throw our picture of God wide open by arguing and by testing and by moving things as we spoke with each other. It's um it's not really what we're like, is it? We're we're very, very different. I think as I look back, the the time that my spiritual life where I grew the most was a Baptist college. And, and not really because of the lecturers. Um, although like a lot of them helped and were good examples and all the rest of it. But what would happen is we kind of get into class first year. And I assume, Baptist college, we were all going to be the same pretty much. You know, We're going to be like, Baptist pastor, one of these. Out of a class of about 32, I think, well, two of them are now, because I'm not anymore. Two of them are now. You know, very, very different people. And we sat in that class and lecturers started discussion and we started talking and we realized, hold on a second, this is not... I don't agree with so-and-so, and they don't agree with whatever, and you'd find groups start to form and talk and argue and fight, and it would get quite heated. And I remember for, for a lot of my first year, that disturbed me. It, it really worried me, because I thought, how can we possibly, as, as God's church, go into the world when you don't agree on stuff? And, 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 and it just surely doesn't work. But the more we discussed, the more we got to know each other, and the more we understood each other's relationship, and actually believed that we had like legit relationships with God that could be trusted... We then move off into the common room after lectures, and we continue the discussion. And they get so good, you know? And, and my view of God went from like, this is what God is like, to like that, like, wow. You know, because I started to see God through other people's relationships. And it didn't matter. I, I, it took me a while, but I started to take away this idea that I should be threatened because someone else sees God slightly differently to me. I mean, we know this when we look at denominations today. I mean, and take it from someone who's moved, you know? I, I've, I've moved from denominations. And where I came from, they weren't right. But you're, you're not right either. <laughs> you're not. And the next place I go won't be right either. But we're on the same page. And yet often, we act as if we're not. I learned so much from... Catholic mystics from off the wall swing from the chandelier charismatics oh, yeah. from like Bible like I know nothing 
about the Bible compared to these guys, evangelicals. I learned so much from people who are very, very different from each other. Very, very different. And I've been able to kind of try, although I, I often fail at this, try and absorb all those different streams and say there is so much richness in all of this. Instead of having to go, well, you don't think like me, so I'm wall down, wall down, that's my God, He's, he, he looks like that. And go, maybe I don't know. Maybe there's a lot to learn, and maybe we don't have to agree. And the kind of community that builds in a place where we don't have to agree to be community, but we can actually be community in understanding, being able to dialogue, without it having to cause rifts and splits and divisions, but actually to say, hey, you know what, God's like this. I, I love that you see that. I, I, don't, I think God is like this. Let's talk about it. Let's see where we go with it. I want, to, um, I want to just look at a, a church that Paul went to as an example. We spoke about Paul the last couple of weeks. He went to a place called Corinth. And I've told you, his tactic was to go into a town somewhere and find a group of people and start to talk and tell them about Jesus. And pull that group together who was responding and leave a church there and then he'd have to write letters back. This place called Corinth was in, uh, was in Greece. And uh, it was, it's just, it's right on that little, can you see that little stretch of land there? It's called an isthmus. I-S-T-H-M-U-S. How do you say that? No, you don't. <laughs> and, yeah, it's one of those. And basically, it's just a connecting piece of land between two major land masses. You can see that little stretch there. Now, obviously, there's a port there. That, that place started up as a port city, and it had quite a rough history, because obviously, as part of Greece, Romans came through, sounds familiar, because hey, they happened quite a lot, and, and they, they gave Corinth a proper hiding in history. They, they slaughtered all the men in the place and like, carted most of the women and children off. It was, it was a bloodbath, proper. And this was only about 200 years before Paul came through. So they were still recovering from this in their, in their kind of culture. But the city had grown back up, and the port was back running. It was full of Romans. It was full of Greeks again. It was full of Jews because they'd spread from Israel during the time they were taken into exile. And it was full of the Gallic tribes. If you look, like, obviously north is kind of modern-day France and Germany and, and all of those. And they came down at some stage and started to settle in the area as well. So you can already see that there's a lot of different kinds of people there. And sort of anyone else from the known world is pulling into the port with, with their ship to sell stuff. So it's a very, very cosmopolitan city. Quite a dodgy city as well as, as port towns tend to be. Um, you can discuss it amongst yourself. What, what obviously happened, though, is that Paul went in and did his usual thing and started a church there. But now, what would, what would that church have been made up of? Probably some Romans, probably some Greeks, probably some Jews, probably some other people. And it would have been up and down the class structure, which was very important in those days. It would have been some government, like some, some ruling class people, some rich merchants, it would have been some household, normal household kind of people, it would have been slaves, it would have been right down top to bottom, that group would have started to spread. Now if you throw a bunch of people in a room together like that, in those days especially, because culture was massive, and like class divisions were huge as well, there would have been obviously a lot of problems. And Paul had this like a lot of places he goes to. And church, the church writes to him and says, look, we have, we don't have that letter they wrote to him, but you can tell in the way that he responds in 1 Corinthians, we've got these problems, we, we're, we're not united, we're not sure how to, uh, to deal with each other. Like, the Jews, 
think that we should have some Jewish practices because Jesus was Jewish. The Greeks are saying, no, that's rubbish because you didn't tell us to do that. Uh, the slaves are, are doing this and they think this, and obviously the masters are um, hitting them. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's not going well. There's a lot of fights because people, people are very different that you've left behind. We, we all believe in Jesus. Like we're all together because we believe in Jesus, but this isn't going well. And you know what? Not once does Paul write back and go, okay, well, the Jews are right. You know, uh, or, or this thing that they said is cool, but that thing not. And he doesn't give lists of who said what was right and wrong. He gives them ways to live as community together well. And I want to read you something. Uh, you can turn there if you want. It's from 1 Corinthians 12. This is obviously Paul's letter when he's writing back. I'm going to read it to you from the message. Just so you can get the idea that this is a, a letter. So it probably won't be a familiar version to you. <coughs> This is Paul writing to a community that has different groups of people, different places, differences of opinion. He says, you can easily enough see, this is from verse 12, you can easily enough see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own bodies. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. It, by means of His one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots. But then we entered into a large and integrated life in which He has the final say in everything. This is what we proclaimed in word and action when we were baptized. Each of us is now a part of His resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at one fountain, His Spirit. We all come to drink. The old labels we once used to identify ourselves, labels like Jew or Greek, slave or free, are no longer useful. We need something larger, more comprehensive. Paul, over and over again, when he writes to churches, says things like, I want to preach nothing but Christ crucified. For me, it's about the cross. It's about grace and it's about what Jesus did. And that is what should unite a community of people who say they follow God. There is plenty to be united over in Jesus. Far more than there is to be divided over. And again and again he calls them and he says you are one body. Different parts. And you, you look different. And you function different. And maybe you don't even agree about everything. But you're one body. And you're united in Jesus and what he did. And that is why you're together. And that is why you walk forward. For a bigger purpose than just you and just agreement. So how, how do we do it? You know, because that's, that's the big thing, isn't it? Like, like how do we do that? The, the thing that irritates me about the Bible sometimes is that uh, we've got um, chapters and verses, you know? Because like 1 Corinthians, when you read it, it's, it's, just a, it's just a letter. Like Paul did not write, chapter 13, because that would be pretentious. He didn't do that. We took it afterwards and said, it's a mission to find anything and all this stuff. All right, I'll put numbers everywhere and some headings so we can find our way around. They weren't there when he wrote it. This was one long letter. So 1 Corinthians 12 speaks about the fact that we're all part of the same body, united in Christ through the Holy Spirit. <coughs> And then it goes to chapter 13, where we start preaching at weddings and talking about love and couples who are getting married and love is like this. No. 
Because there was no division between the chapter. It's one flowing letter. So why is he talking about parts of the body and then talking straight into loving one another? Let's, I just want to read you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 from verse 1. Again, I'm going to read it in this, so you probably won't be familiar with the, with the wording. If I speak, he says, but now I want to lay out a far better way for you. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but a creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day. If I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back. But keeps going to the end. Paul's saying pretty clearly, guys, this thing that you have to be, this community, is going to be diverse, and it should be, but it's going to be difficult. And then he moves straight into talking about, you need to be a community filled with love, because if you're not, you're not going to last. You're not going to make it, because you're never going to find a community that just agreed. I'm trying to fast forward on talking. Let's have a look at these guys again. We started with them. <coughs> Peter Wood went to Rome in about 65 AD. And uh, he arrived there because he was basically taking over from Paul, who had been killed a couple of years before. <coughs> and he goes into Rome and he finds the church there, um, uh, the small group that has started kind of following Jesus. And he finds them and he starts to spend some time with them and preach with them and help them out. And then Nero, who was the emperor in Rome at the time, um, who wasn't very fond of Christians and quite a violent guy, decided that he was going to sort this guy out and sort of pull out. Peter's coming to replace him. That's fine. We'll take care of Peter as well. So he sends his soldiers out. And history tells us that the soldiers went through the streets trying to find Peter, and the church guys heard about it. And so they warned Peter. They said, Peter, the, the soldiers are coming to take you, so you need to get out now. And Peter argues for a bit, and then he decides to leave. And... It says that um, one, of the, one of the historians like, who's just talking about what he heard had happened, that Peter's walking towards the gates of Rome, and he sees a vision of Jesus coming in the other direction. And he, he falls to his knees when he sees Jesus, and he says, he says Jesus, my, my Lord, where are you going? And Jesus turns to him and he says, I'm going to be crucified again. And Peter, all of a sudden, feels ashamed, and he realizes that he's running, it's not time to run. So he stands up and he walks back in the city to get arrested. The soldiers drag him into the arena. They nail the cross there. And they're getting ready to crucify him. And Peter stops him. He says, no, guys, um, I cannot be crucified like Jesus. I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way as Jesus. Crucify me upside down. And Peter was crucified upside down in the arena. Why? Because he believed in what Jesus did. 
And he was going to preach Christ crucified, even if it meant he died. Andrew, Andrew went to Greece. Uh, and in 66 AD, just a year after his brother died, he was in Greece and he was preaching as well. And the governor in Greece, who was obviously a Roman governor placed there, he was dragged before the governor. And he, he begs on behalf of all the people that he's been preaching to. And he started this little church in Macedon. And he says, he says to the governor, please don't persecute these guys. Please leave them alone. They won't cause you trouble. Just leave them. And he begs on behalf of this community that he started, leave them alone. Please leave them alone. The governor gets more and more angry with him. And he's had orders from the Senate in Rome to kill any Christians. So they drag Andrew outside and towards the crosses that they've set up. And it's reported that as he's going towards the crosses, Andrew says something like, the nearer I get to you, the cross, the nearer I get to God. And, O cross, I welcome you because I follow him who died on you. They strung him up on that cross, nailed him to it. And he hung there for three days and three nights, preaching the whole time about the Jesus who hung on a cross just like that. And then he passed away. Why? Because he believed that he was going to spend his life and his days preaching Christ crucified, even if it meant that he lose his life. Matthew. Matthew went to Ethiopia, um, made it down that far, and he started to preach there. There's actually a big uh, Christian community there that started even from those days. Um, and in Ethiopia, he found some success. He started to form communities. And, and the king of Ethiopia at the time was actually pro what Matthew was doing and some of the other Christians. So he allowed it to happen and even encouraged it. But in, in 66 AD, the same year that Andrew died, the king died and a new king replaced him who was very anti this new movement. And so he sends soldiers out and he finds Matthew teaching the people one day. He goes into the room and with, with the soldiers. The soldiers drag Matthew outside with the people following him wondering what's going on and being scared. And they pin him to the ground and they take short spears and they stab through him, pinning him to the floor, leaving him there for hours and torturing him and then cutting his head off. Why? Because he was going to preach Christ crucified until the day he dies, even if it means he died a death that he wasn't meant to or earlier than, than he would have. Simon preached in North Africa, um, in some of the islands in the Mediterranean. He went to Persia, and eventually he ended up in Great Britain, which was also a Roman province. But the Romans called him in Great Britain, and they got hold of him, and they tortured him, holding him down, uh, tying him down, and taking hot metal plates was a favorite with the Romans. And they just burned his flesh, telling him, if you tell us you will stop talking about Jesus, we'll stop this. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't take it back. And after they tortured him for who knows how long, they took him outside, and they crucified him. Why? Because he was going to preach Christ crucified until the day he died, even if it meant his death came early and far more painfully. All these guys, different places, different points of view, not the same. Yet they're united around Jesus. Jesus and what he did is enough to unite that group of people. The periphery stuff was not important to them. They got together and they said, you know what, Matthew and Simon, you know what, we disagree on politics. Okay, so we're, we're about Jesus and you know, we're about Christ crucified and that's, that's way more than, than there is for us to disagree on. So this united band of very different people spreads over the world and that's one of the reasons we sit here today.
because they brought it together. We're going to move into communion now. And um, can I guess? Do you want to? Um, this is what I want us to do tonight. Um, I want us to. Uh, so I'm going to leave this up on the screen. Because when Jesus was in the in the upper room and he was sharing with, with his disciples on the on the night before he died, and he, he takes bread and he breaks it with them, and he says, "Guys, this this bread that I'm breaking is is my body broken for you. And it's it's uh, it's it's a sign of something new that's going on. This 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 wine is is the blood of the new covenant." And and they probably didn't understand anything to do with that, but the next day I think they would have uh, <coughs> caught on some of the things that he was saying. And this is what's going to unite you. And then at that meal, just after Judas has stormed out, he says this to them. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I'm telling you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We may be very different in this room tonight, but we are a community bound around Jesus crucified. That's what we believe. I think we need to ask ourselves questions the whole time about, are we a diverse enough community in this country, for example? Are we different enough? That's what we should be looking for. Not more of the same. Not trying to shove each other through our molds and say, you need to be more like me and more about the way I think. No, we need to be becoming more diverse all the time. But bound and united around Christ crucified. And we can only do that in love and in the power of the Spirit. We're going to pray. And then Gary's just going to play for a while. And I want you just to take some time. We're going to kind of use this as a bit of a ministry time tonight. And um, I want you to come up in your own time. When you've kind of sort of sifted some of this stuff, if God is saying something to you, maybe answer that for a bit. Think about it. Process it. Do some, do some business with God. And then at the end of that time, I want you just to get up. Um, so if you, if you get up straight away, that's great. If you take five minutes, that's cool as well. Just in your time, if you get up and come to the front and you receive communion, making this commitment, that you may be different to a lot of people in this room. You may not think the same, you may not agree, but you will be united. You will be bound around Christ crucified because that is more important than anything else you can come up with to divide you. And I want you to make that commitment in your heart, before God. There might be people you want to speak to, that's good, great. Maybe there's people you want to phone, that's cool as well, that's fine. Whatever you need to do, just listen to what God is saying to you. So let's bow our heads, and I'm going to pray, and then Gary's going to play for a bit, and in your time, Ross and myself and Hugh are going to be up front, and we're just going to serve you as we come, we're going to wait for you. Don't wait for anyone else, when you're ready, you come. Don't look up and check who's gone, and enough people gone, you come when you're ready. Let's pray.